Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Dusharika Deka. I'm a final year PhD student at the University of Nottingham. Today I'll be speaking to a very special guest, uh, Professor Indrajit Roy. In fact, he has just been promoted to professor, which was announced yesterday. So congratulations on that, uh, Professor Roy. We will be will be discussing about his latest edited work called Passionate Politics, Democracy, Development and India's 2019 General Elections, published by the Manchester University Press 2023. And I have to take a pause here because I end up saying Manchester United, which I should not. So, Indrajit, again, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tusharika. Thank you for your kind words. Um, so, you know, before we go into the questions, I would like to, you know, formally introduce Professor Roy to our listeners. Um, Professor Roy is the Professor of Global Development Politics at the University of York, Department of Politics. His research and teaching strengthen critical approaches to ordering global development politics. He does this through three projects, the project of inclusive growth in the global south, which is so important. Two, the comparative politics of hope across the global south and the global north. And three, the impact of rising powers on the global order. He has authored Politics of the Poor, Negotiating Democracy in the Contemporary India, published by Cambridge University Press 2018. He has a lot of upcoming work that we will learn towards the end of the conversation. His work has been published in peer-reviewed journals such as the World Development, uh, Political Studies and Politics. His contribution he contributes frequently to media like the BBC, The Guardian, Independent, The Conversation, and the Indian Express. Indrajit is committed to collaborative research that not only involves scholars from beyond the social sciences, but includes activists, artists, and policy shapers. His teaching is oriented towards perspectives that contribute to decolonizing and diversifying the curriculum. He is a fellow of the Higher Education Academy. He has also won the Teaching Excellence Award in 2016. Indrajit is also the executive trustee of the UK Political Studies Association, council member of the UK Development Studies Association, and a member of the executive committee of the International Political Studies Association. That's a lot of achievement, Indrajit. So, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's perfectly fine. So, please tell me a bit more about yourself. 
Sure. Thank you, Tusharika. Thank you also for the very warm words of introduction uh, and uh, very generous uh, invitation uh, to the New Books uh, podcast, um, which I'm a big fan of, I should say, and uh, follow. Uh, I have been following for a while. Um, like you said, I research, uh, teach, and study the politics of uh, global development. Um, before starting my DPhil at Oxford, I had a career as a development practitioner in India. Uh, my doctoral work uh, focused on the very local ways in which poor people in rural India, in the states of Bihar and West Bengal, uh, appropriated and negotiated the very different practices of development. Um, and my first book, which you referred to, uh, Politics of the Poor, Negotiating Democracy in Contemporary India, uh, was published by Cambridge University Press, uh, and that was the result of my doctoral research. Um, as an ethnographic work, uh, the book highlighted not only poor people's practices, but also the ideas that animated those practices and the emotions that underpinned those practices. Um, since then, my research interests have expanded. Um, they've become quite undisciplined, actually, uh, to explore the politics of development at national, uh, regional, and global scales. Um, given my own commitments to diversification and decolonization of the social sciences, which you mentioned, I have uh, remained attentive, or at least tried to remain attentive to ideas, narratives, and emotions. Uh, even as the work, uh, my work is now much more comparative and collaborative. Um, Indian politics has remained relevant to my research uh, because uh, of how it is entwined with questions of development, um, you know, whether it's the narrative of inclusive growth, uh, which was promoted by the uh, UPA, or the rhetoric of Sapka Saat, Sapka Vikas, uh, development for all, which the BJP embraced under Prime Minister Modi. So uh, a lot of my work has been around development as it has been understood at different scales. Fantastic, fantastic. I mean, there's so much to learn actually even from that. Um, uh, so now coming back to the content of the book and what I really like about the book, and I think if I may add that, um, of course, it is interdisciplinary, which is what academia should always strive for and there should not be any limitations to our knowledge production. In fact, when I was rereading the contribution of the book, one thing if I may add is that, you know, all the points that you've added, what I really found interesting is that the book has a diverse range of methodologies. They have interviews, there is historiographic accounts. I found it so fascinating. And secondly, the book is contemporary. It talks about what is happening around us. So how does this book come about? Would you want to explain a bit on that? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'm so glad you asked that question because it's, it's always something that's uh, very easily overlooked. So um, you know, I have, as I mentioned, a long-standing interest in the politics of development uh, with a focus on India. So um, just before the Indian elections of uh, 2019, I think it was February or January, uh, when folks at the conversation, um, you know, they, they, the, the sort of uh, uh, online portal uh, based out of Britain, um, they, they reached out to me. Uh, it was Gemma Ware, who's now head of audio there, and Annabel Bly, who used to produce uh, what they call the Ant Hill podcast. 
Um, and we got talking about uh, a podcast on the elections and they asked me if I was interested in, you know, working with them to curate a podcast. And I, of course, very enthusiastically took up the offer because it was a nice way of, uh, you, you know, presenting um, work uh, that was adjacent to my own research uh, and a chance to learn from uh, what others were doing. Um, so the six-episode podcast, India Tomorrow, resulted from this collaboration and was based on interviews uh, with uh, many social scientists based uh, in Britain as well as in India uh, and elsewhere. And it was really uh, those interviews uh, that got, uh, you know, the book rolling. Um, and I'm, I will always remain very grateful to the colleagues who were uh, willing to contribute to the con- conversation uh, who agreed thereafter to write up their contributions as chapters uh, for the edited volume? Um, so that was a, a big ask, uh, and uh, for, for that you know, for me and um, you know, they they played along and uh, they they really were willing to put words down on paper, literally, um, and that's that's what got the book started. Um, I think we were uh, keen to focus the volume on passionate politics um, because, uh, like you mentioned, they were, you know, they were an interdisciplinary uh, group of scholars. But uh, I think we all agreed that uh, the elections were billed as the battle for India's soul. So it was impossible to ignore the emotions that were ignited by, you know, protagonists as well as observers. Um, and it was a recurring theme in every contribution to the podcast. So in some ways, the interviews, the, 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 the sort of contributions framed the uh, book and the work on passionate politics. And that's what um, brought it about, really. How fascinating is that? Something that started from a podcast and it is, you know, we are doing a podcast on the book. It seems like it has come a full circle now. So, yeah, right. yeah, yeah right. absolutely. So, so fantastic. So what has been your intellectual influence and inspiration here? Yeah, I suppose um, you could say we were inspired by three bodies of work. Um, you know, the first is uh, really drawing on the work of historians and anthropologists of emotions in India. Um, the second, uh, you could say, you know, political sociologists who have studied the politics of feelings more broadly. And of course, political scientists who study elections. Um, So in thinking about the politics of emotions in South Asia, uh, the anthropologists Emily Blom and Stephanie Tawalamarewal have urged us to distinguish between um, three things. Uh, One, the representation of emotion. Two, the ways in which emotions are experienced. uh, And three, the expression of emotions. Um, so you can imagine representations uh, describe how people's emotions are represented by others. The experience of emotions relates to the emotions people actually feel. And the expression of emotions draws on verbal and nonverbal markers, including self-reporting of how respondents feel. Um, and I think you could say that um, in this book, the contributions really reflect on the expressed rather than the representational or experiential dimension of emotion. Um, so that's the very specific strand of uh, thinking about the politics of emotions in South Asia that we're uh, really, uh, you know, uh, drawing on and taking forward. 
Um, we're also mindful of uh, the sociologist Jack Barbalet's reminder that, um, and I quote him, emotions must be understood in the context of the structural relations of power and status that elicit them, unquote. Um, so feelings and ideas, uh, affect and cognition, these are not mutually exclusive and they're certainly not opposed to each other, uh, as Colin Barker would uh, tell us. Um, and so feelings are best understood as an ensemble of political dispositions, uh, something that uh, Jeff Goodwin, Jasper, uh, James Jasper and Francesca Poletta clarify in the introduction to their edited volume, which was called Passionate Politics, actually. Uh, and it was a book about emotions and social movements. So um, from them, we really, you know, uh, learned how important it was to study passions in the context of the social structures in which they're embedded. Um, and I suppose you could say that our focus on political feelings in the context of elections overcomes uh, a widespread tendency of attending to politicized emotions only in the context of you know, cataclysmic events, uh, social movements, uh, disruptive episodes uh, like the partition in India, for instance, or, uh, you know, elsewhere. Um, such studies uh, tend to reduce feelings uh, almost to resources that can be mobilized by political actors. Or they suggest that feelings can be subsumed under the cultural production of identity, now, we don't deny these possibilities, Tusharika, but we recognize um, with Simon Clark and his colleagues that the um, interpenetration of reason and passion, thought and feeling um, that characterize affective politics uh, during elections are, um, you know, are, are important. Um, and we think that the focus on feelings during elections mainstreams the study of political emotions in institutional and procedural contexts, so not just in terms of you know great uh, sort of social upheavals, but also in what are otherwise quite routine uh, and institutional uh, and procedural uh, elements of politics, like elections. So just to be clear, um, it's not that the politics of emotions have not been studied in India. We have a very rich and growing attention to political feelings that offer very granular accounts of social movements, of community formation, of collective action, of riots, of displays of outrage, of hurt, of militancy. Um, we have excellent studies of emotions in the context of pride, humiliation, nationalism. So we are not making any claims in this book about recovering passions in politics per se, all we are suggesting is that the role of emotions in studies around routine aspects of procedural democracy, like elections, has tended to be neglected and, you know, ours is a contribution to, to that end. Um, and just to think about elections, uh, you know, even in India, of course, we are, uh, you know, we, we think about the 2019 elections as um, this, uh, you know, massive sort of electoral exercise, which threw up a 45 percent um, vote share for uh, Prime Minister Modi um, and his and his allies. Um, but remember, in its heyday as India's dominant party, the Congress um, also threw up, you know, similar vote shares, and uh, it may well have benefited from political emotions. Um, you know, in the fifty-one, fifty-two elections, the Congress party won forty-five percent of the vote. 
In the second general election, the Congress improved its vote share, you know, won 47% of the vote. Um, in 1971, Mrs. Gandhi commanded 43% of the vote, um, and she actually won 352 seats out of 543 uh, and translated a smaller vote share than Modi into larger seat shares than the BJP managed. So surely passions among voters translated into their thumping support for the Congress party in all three cases. Um, in 1984, we know that the Congress mustered a 49% vote share, and the circumstances under which those elections were held uh, are very well known to all of us. Uh, passions were high, anger, fear, and grief entwined uh, to hand the Congress party the largest ever mandate in post-colonial India. Um, but when we were when we was looking for works that might um, sort of anchor the elections in analytically in uh, and explore the role of emotions in those elections, I struggled. Um, I, I you know was unable to sort of look at works that uh, analytically explore the role of emotions in those elections. So while we have a growing understanding of emotions in the context of protest politics, social movements and riots, um, we're almost left with the incorrect assumption that emotions are unimportant to electoral politics. Um, and we have very uh, you know, increasingly sophisticated academic analysis of elections. So it's not that elections are not studied. It's just that um, they could do more to integrate the study of uh, emotions. Um, you could almost say that the study of elections is too important to be left to political scientists. And I say this as a proud member of one of Britain's most vibrant politics departments. Um, but it's just that appreciating electoral politics and the emotions they spawn require a new approach um, that departs from conventional political science concepts uh, such as populism, party machinery, vote buying, etc., that have been typically used to study electoral politics in India. Uh, and I guess this comes back to the point you mentioned earlier about the interdisciplinary nature of this project, right? Um, a genuine understanding of these processes needs conversations across academic disciplines. It needs economists and sociologists and anthropologists and geographers to talk to each other, and of course, to political scientists. Um, and I think you're right in terms of thinking about the interdisciplinary approach um, that uh, has been taken in this book. Um, you know, it, it, that sort of approach could shed new light on um, the economic, social and cultural dimensions of a significant political moment in India today, but also in subsequent uh, elections and, and, and also uh, prior elections. I mean, there's no reason why this can't be sort of done for elections that were held in the past. Um, uh, you know, so I think there's, it's just thinking about a new way of looking at uh, uh, routine aspects of democracy and emotions matter there, I guess. Um, um, so so that, that, that's, that's where, uh, to, to sort of, I guess that's a long winded way of responding to your question about what the influences were. Um, and, you know, we really want to take emotion seriously in the study of routine aspects of politics. 
Fantastic. Fantastic. This is such a fascinating explanation. And and we'll come back to the point about the context in India, Indian context of work, because that's part of the second theme. But I would first, you know, like to uh, give a details about the, you know, how to our listeners, at least how the book is organized. Uh, so the book is organized into seven sections uh, based on a theme. Uh, so the next few questions will be from each of the themes. And I think it is fair that we give some time to each of the theme and also so at least point out the name of the authors. Um, um, would you would you please explain a bit and how you know how each of these themes were selected? How do you interlink them in the narrative of the book? So the first theme is about the feelings of love, fear, and fake news. Um, there are two chapters here, one by Dr. Amodhar Sharma and the other by Dr. Swadesh Singh. Uh, would you explain a bit about it and the intersection? of democracy and technology, which is the common occurring theme at the moment. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a really um, sort of useful point to start off, um, you know, thinking about the themes in the book, because um, if the 2014 general elections were uh, celebrated as India's social media elections, uh, the 2019 uh, election was certainly a WhatsApp election, you know, and that's the way the Financial Times, I think, described it. Um, I think the, you know, 330 million Indians on WhatsApp uh, make the country, you know, WhatsApp's biggest market. That number may have risen now, actually. Um, Already in Brazil, uh, WhatsApp uh, had gained notoriety or popularity, depending on how you look at it. Uh, Bolsonaro had won the presidency there, riding high on a WhatsApp wave uh, that was fueled by rumors and misinformation. That was the year before uh, 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 Modi got re-elected. Um, in India, the BJP ran the world's largest digital campaign uh, to reach out to committed voters as well as floating voters uh, who were targeted with a variety of uh, different sorts of messages. Um, and Amok's chapter tells us about the ways in which uh, the circulation of fake news and conspiracy theories, um, you know, what he calls everyday communalism, Um, that uh, fomented fear and anger operated quite independently of the BJP's control. Um, So, you know, this was a story of how, uh, you know, ideologically committed almost members uh, or maybe ideologically agnostic, but people who were committed to the BJP or to Modi per se, who were, uh, you know, um, involved in circulating uh, news and theories that uh, generated the sort of, Uh, fear that is the focus of uh, this chapter. Uh, Similarly, Swadesh's chapter documents the online Academics for NAMO campaign by right-leaning professors and research scholars to showcase their love for the Supreme Leader, uh, his Hindu nationalist credentials, and the idea of India as a Hindu nation. Um, So in some ways, you could say fear and love you know, work together, obviously, you know, you come to it from two different sides. And I think in that way, these two contributions approach the topic from diametrically opposite ends. Um, but they help us guard against reducing this powerful social media support that the BJP enjoyed uh, to the bunch, to to the activities of a random bunch of radicalized digital mercenaries, you know, so it's, it's much deeper than that. Now, I think your question, you know, you you asked about, you know, the interaction of democracy and technology. Um, And while that interaction has been considered good for democracy, you know, when you think about the um, Arab Spring, etc., 
and the role of uh, technology in, in disseminating uh, uh, the Arab Spring. Um, I would like to be optimistic about this interaction, but uh, and, and I would like to think of it as a virtual cycle. But I think the contributions in this section compel us to be a little cautious. Um, and some people would say, of course, Modi's election is, you know, a huge exercise in democracy. Um, I'm, of course, not so sure. And I think the, the uh, chapters in the book would also guard against, um, you know, assuming that uh, tech- digital technology is necessarily supportive of uh, democracy. Um, quite to the contrary, it, it can work in ways that uh, spark all sorts of emotions, which, uh, you know, could uh, result in uh, the erosion of democracy which is, of course, a process we are seeing in India today. Second theme, and this also takes me back to the answer that you actually were talking about how emotion, working on emotion from Indian context. And um, there are four chapters here, one by Dr. Shanli Sharma, uh, one by Professor Shurikan Wakmore, one by you, and the other one is by uh, Dr. Ajay Gudavardi. Interestingly, my previous guest uh, was also Dr. Gudavardi, where we had discussed his book, Politics, Ethics and Emotions in New India. Uh, So, you know, I have already got a substantial foundation in understanding the interconnection of emotion uh, with uh, politics, particularly in India's context. So, you know, I had a lot of literature to refer back to. And while reading that, I always go back to the works of James Baldwin for some reason. And, you know, especially when I'm reading emotion in politics. So how do you see the emotion impacting the current political landscape? Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a, that's a fascinating question. And, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to say that the uh, contributions in, in the second section that you mentioned, they do, they do sort of offer, um, you know, entry points, at least, uh, to think about uh, the emotive politics of Hindutva, um, the notion of Hinduness, which uh, underpins the BJP's commitment to govern India, uh, as you know, according to a Hindu way of life. Um, so that section actually opens with Ajay's chapter, where he details um, how the anxieties uh, that are spawned by India's uh, neoliberal political economy are in some ways assuaged by the promises of cultural majoritarianism. So almost in a way you could say, or rather he would say that the uncertainties of neoliberalism are contained by the certainties uh, promised by Hindutva. Um, and I think uh, that's, uh, that, that theme is taken forward um, by in, in uh, Shalini Sharma's chapter, um, where uh, you know, she, as a historian, she really looks at how the online passions that were generated on social media um, were marshaled in favor of, a, a, as you know, a century-old offline ideal that vowed uh, to establish the Hindus as a political community, as a monolithic political community. Uh, and that sort of, you know, takes forward the idea of the, the certainty that's promised by uh, Hindutva. Uh, you know who is included and you know who is excluded sort of thing. Um, and this is an ideal um, that was embraced not only by the, uh, the the self-styled upper castes, as they like to call themselves, um, across different classes, which is what my own chapter shows, um, but also by members of historically oppressed Dalits, uh, for whom Hindutva appeared to be more civil than popular Hinduism. Uh, and that is, of course, the subject of uh, uh, Professor Wagmore's uh, chapter. 
where he shows the ways in which um, you know the the ideals of equality within uh, Hinduism that are uh, at least uh, promised by Hindutva are certainly more appealing than uh, notions of untouchability, notions of graded inequalities, notions of caste that riddle popular Hinduism. So I, I guess you could say that, you know, the, the thinking about the ways in which emotions impact the current political landscape, um, I think there are emotions, there are emotions of anxiety, uh, which are met by emotions of being cared for, uh, uh, the idea of being included, uh, even if it means others are excluded, uh, which uh, definitely, uh, you know, have a role in shaping the current political landscape. Uh, which arguably is a very Hindutvaized political landscape. Brilliant. And, you know, coming from the idea of being included, I I would also point out the third section here. Uh, And also this is the area that I have keen interest because that's where my research is also. It is about the the troubled history of Indian state and particularly with Kashmir. there are three chapters here, one by Dr. Saran Sari, one by Dr. Atharjia, um, whose work I'm always fascinated by, and one by Sashwati Das. Um, would you expand a bit on this one? Of course. Um, and, and, and you mentioned your own work from which yeah. we've all learned so much. Um, I mean, thinking about the importance of uh, Jammu and Kashmir to the 2019 elections, um, we we did think it would be uh, apt to dedicate an entire section to it, although you know some reviewers were not so sure um, of it. Uh, but uh, and you know the importance of the elections uh, of of the state to the elections. Um, now, as as you as you also know, you know if Hindus are envisaged as a unified political community under Hindutva, um, the Indian nation is imagined as a monolith as well. Um, and the Hindutva imagination, as well as the BJP's um, electoral manifestos, have always been against the special provisions extended by the Indian constitution to the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Um, so in section three, we start with, uh, uh, you know, Sarah Ansari, um, you know, taking us through the troubled history of the state and the political circumstances, you know, that led to those special provisions being institutionalized. Um, and that uh, conversation is taken forward by Athar Ziyar's um, uh, contribution, which shows how that uh, special uh, political circumstances and the special provisions um, generated both desires as well as resentments, uh, which place uh, Kashmiris at odds with other Indians. Um, and so it's that sort of, uh, you, you know, the, the, the historical trajectory as well as its its emotional outcomes that these two chapters sort of, uh, you know, help us um, come to terms with. Um, and Shashwati's chapter talks about the ways in which tensions in Kashmir and the role of neighboring Pakistan, um, you know, bore significantly on the elections. Um, you know, the, the whole episode in February where a suicide bomber killed 40-odd Indian paramilitary troops, uh, provoked a swift retaliation by India. Modi's ratings soared thereafter, uh, blended angry Indians' love for their country with adoration that almost bordered, bordered on exaltation for a strong and powerful leader who had taught the enemy a lesson. So 
um, you know, very effectively utilizing various tropes on Indian nationalism uh, and contemporary observers, you know, remarked uh, more than Hindutva, it was really Indian nationalism that sort of came into play in those months, uh, which, um, you know, really resulted in uh, Modi's ratings uh, soaring. Um, and so you had anger and love coming together with adoration and exaltation to produce that sort of Indian uh, nationalism that, um, you know, arguably had a huge role in generating the results that we saw. You know, when we talk about Kashmir, you know, there's just always a pause, you know, because you go back to so many thoughts. There are yeah. so many emotions keep running. <laughs> um, so- Absolutely. And I, I guess you're right. I mean, on that, you know, it's it's it, it just... Yeah, I, I won't say it just happened to be the eve of the elections, but Kashmir is, in every sense of the word, an emotive sort of uh, aspect of uh, of uh, you know South Asian politics, at least politics in India and Pakistan. So uh, I guess you can't ignore it, right? No, no absolutely not. Absolutely. You call no, no. politics. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, you know, um, the fourth section is on gender and caste in Indian society. Um, there's one chapter by Professor Charu Gupta and the other one is by uh, Dr. Sneha Krishnan. And, you know, what I could take away, my takeaway from this theme and uh, theme three, which is on Kashmir, is that I found a common underlying tone on both the occasion and this the concept of surveillance, the concept of censorship and ownership. If if I may add that, if I'm correct, um, would you like to expand on that a bit? Yeah, I think that that's it's really nice you picked on that. Um, I think we came, we we sort of realized that, but it was too late to reorganize things, and we did want to sort of have a separate section on Kashmir for the reasons we mentioned. But you're right. I think there is a a, a theme of surveillance that sort of runs across those sections. Um, and I guess it's got to do with policing um, anyone or anything considered out of place. Uh, I mean, there's always the narrative about Kashmir being a troublesome place, Kashmiris being a troublesome people, and so they need to be policed, especially by a regime that would like to inform, uh, enforce uniformity. Um, but I think th- that's 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 of a piece with the discussions in Section 4, because, um, you know, you, you, you think about... Uh, the focus on women in Indian society that those two chapters sort of bring about. Uh, both uh, Charu and Sneha discuss the profound changes that are reshaping gender norms and relationships in India today. Uh, how these uh, reshaped gender norms intersect with changes in caste as well as class hierarchies, with religious traditions, with political institutions. Um, you know, Sneha's chapter offers us a glimpse into hostile lives of young people, of young women, especially. Uh, Charu's uh, paper, you know, refers to the moral panics uh, that have been generated by the freer intermingling of women and men, especially from different religious traditions. Um, and you can you can see the you can appreciate the significance of the emotions that permeate gender roles in contemporary India, as well as the reaction that this would. Uh, sort of ferment uh, by those who consider themselves to be, uh, you know, purveyors of Indian culture or purveyors of Indian politics um, and how they would like to or they would, you know, be insistent on uh, policing, uh, you you know, what they consider to be out of place. So the plethora of laws, uh, you know, around love jihad or the uh, sorts of rules that are put in place in the hostels, 
you know, alongside the military occupation of an entire region, I think that there is a certain theme that uh, you're you're quite right, you know, runs runs through. Um, and that, of course, I guess, has to link with the idea of ownership, you know, what is owned and what is considered to be, um, I don't want to use the word property because of the connotations of that term, uh, but, uh, you know, adjacent to the idea of, you know, being controlled, something that needs to be controlled, something that needs to be kept in its place um, and something that should not be um should not be given too much freedom, I suppose, uh, to move around. Um, I mean, I have to say that uh, it, it, I think the, the 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 BJP does also mobilize ideas of freedom in its to its own favor. So the idea that it's giving freedom to certain groups, certain gender, certain ideas, uh, and identities, uh, you know, the BJP does sort of uh, harness the idea of freedom to its own advantage. Uh, but you're right. I think no matter which way we play it, the idea of surveillance is is quite central. Uh, the practice of surveillance certainly is quite central to how um, you know the, uh, recalcitrant actors are kept in place. Yeah, and and in fact, more so with, with the emergence of technology that we can see around. Absolutely, oh, absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Because I mean, yeah. surveillance has always been there. I mean, spies were always part of our, you know, the the foreign culture. So yeah. so I think that's not uh, necessarily new. But yes, how the technology is being used and implemented, that's that's uh, also and, I mean. I suppose you're also right in terms of how that technology is used um, and, uh, you know, deployed is changing. And I guess that also results in, you know, how it's being negotiated or resisted. That's also being uh, changed. You know, so the, so the mi- mi- micro level sort of actions that um, th- th- this section really shows, you know, how women defy curfew without necessarily defying it publicly, but, you know, quietly and, um, you know, how um, women and men find their own ways of interacting beyond the surveillance patterns that the state seeks to impose uh, are also changing and they, they warrant attention. But you're right, of course, that that is framed by the idea of, um, you, you know, uh, the, the purveyors of uh, culture and politics and how they would like to see people staying in their place. Yeah, in fact, you know, I I did my undergrad at Delhi University, and I live in the North Campus, so I have been through that process through the system. So we all know at what time the coffee is going to be, at what time we need to be back. Uh, how many days are we allowed to go out? How many not? So everything is, you know, uh, given to us, <laughs> written to us. So yeah, been through that system. It's very unfortunate, but yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so so we'll move to the fifth theme um, that focuses on the youth of India and their political participations. And there are two chapters in this section. One is by again, Dr. Sneha Krishnan. Uh, I love this chapter, by the way. And the other chapter is by Dr. Mabel Denjing Gergen and Dr. Krish- Karishma K. Lepcha. I must point that it features the state of Sikkim and youth participation. And I was pleasantly, pleasantly, you know, delighted to read it uh, because really we read literature in Northeast or uh, and Sikkim, uh, sorry. Um, and I'm from Assam. Uh, so there is an inherent interest. Um, so credit to the authors and the editor for curating it. Um, India is at the moment has the world's largest youth population with 356 million youth. So how are the young people voting? Hmm. 
I think uh, it, it, it's a really good question and a really uh, sobering statistic as well, um, Tushareka, you know, the number that we're talking about. Um, it's probably larger than the population of the United States, is it? Um, so, so it's a huge, you know, it's a huge, huge uh, demographic we're talking about. Um, and I think it, it presents some very troubling elements, troubling depending, of course, on, on which side of the political sort of spectrum you're on. It's troubling or celebratory, depending on how you look at it. But, um, you know, you, 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 you could almost say that the, um, I think that the, the, the BJP and uh, Mr. Modi can really count on, um, or at least could count on uh, young people's electoral support um, I, I remember this um, author, Vaivan Marwaha, who's written a book on Indian millennials, I think, who, uh, you know, shows us, tells us how all the young people he met um, during the course of writing his book, uh, you know, thought of Modi as the only one who can really represent their aspirations, uh, not only nationally, but also internationally. And of course, there are uh, sort of geographic um, differences. Uh, there are uh, differences of caste and class and uh, language uh, that plays in here. But I think if you look at some post-poll surveys, which suggest that 40% um, or or that support for uh, Modi was as high as 40% among the 18 to 35-year-old demographics, uh, that's a pretty sobering account of, um, you know, thinking about how young people vote and gives you a picture, uh, you know, of how uh, a, a politician who's almost 70 uh, enjoys a lot of support among uh, people less than half his age. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's, that, 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 that seems to be a paradox, um, but there is, of course, a very peculiar confluence of aspiration and anxiety that's working here. Um, uh, you know, on the one hand, you have a crumbling caste hierarchy, the promise of economic opportunities that followed India's economic liberalization, which have fomented unprecedented aspirations among young people in the country. Um, And I think the chapter uh, by Mabel and Charisma uh, show this in the context of Sikkim and show how it's so similar to the story you hear elsewhere as well. Um, On the other hand, you have inadequate jobs, which uh, restrict uh, young people's employment in the careers of their choice. And of course, if you are a woman, as Sneha's chapter shows, you can expect additional limitations, um, you know, that curb your aspirations even more. Um, but there's obviously something going on which, um, uh, you know, allows uh, or lets young people believe that, um, uh, you know, Mr. Modi has their best interests at heart. Um, and I don't think it's just about electoral man- manipulation. Uh, or, uh, you know, uh, straightforward brainwashing. Um, I think there are, and this this might trouble the conversation we were having just before, you know, on surveillance, uh, on ideas about control. In some ways, uh, perhaps young people feel free uh, or freer to, you know, per- pursue their ambitions under the BJP and uh, Mr. Modi. Um, than they they might consider in in other regimes. Uh, I mean, I don't have an answer to this uh, question in an explanatory sense, but it does trouble ideas about surveillance and freedom um, because, of course, you would expect young people to push back against surveillance, right? Uh, 
but perhaps they are being made to feel that well they are the ones in control <laughs> um, you know and and there are stories uh, from the 1930s germany in in the way in which uh, younger people were recruited to uh, the the cause of uh, you know movements on the right uh, because they felt they had power they felt they had they were able to do things that they couldn't do in you know in the previous regime um so i think there are there are parallels uh, which uh, i think some of us would be worried about others would of course celebrate it <laughs> um as i said depending on your own political sort of uh, uh, uh views uh, but there is um, you know there is a, a deep a very profound paradox in the way in which uh, young people uh, vote and the way in which they are politically engaged i i think it's fair to say that uh, young people are not politically disengaged uh, they are very very politically engaged um uh, and i think on that we can all agree on but i guess the reasons for their uh very specific ways in which they they vote the way they do have have yet to be understood now all of this of course we're talking about 2019 um we don't see any reasons for it to substantially change by 2024 uh especially given the um social media mastery that uh the bjp uh, seems to have um but one can always be hopeful that um others will also master the same techniques and reach out to younger voters sure sure um i mean that's one of the uh, strong characteristics of a technology you know we say that they have engulfed us but actually we are engulfed by them uh you know it's embedded in our lives uh, so there's no there's no alternatives here absolutely yeah yeah it's it's about how you you know choose to use them or can be used by them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um so the the sixth section is about the economics of passionate politics and there are three chapters here. Uh the first one is an apologies if I'm reading it not correctly is Dr. Ens Lerche uh, and Professor Albasha. The other one is by Professor Kunal Sen and then by Professor Nitya Rao. I was really invested by uh, Professor Rao's article that details the agrarian crisis and the farmers protests which uh, needs to be mentioned here. Um how does the overall theme reflect on the emotional manipulation based on economics? Yeah, I think this is a good one because um you know you wouldn't immediately um uh, associate economics with passions and I remember Kunal telling us that you know economists aren't known to be passionate creatures so why are you wanting me he asked so, but of course as I mentioned earlier passions do not exist in an economic vacuum um and I think the the the, the, the reason these chapters are uh, the chapters in section 6 are uh, important to the argument that is made overall in the book um is because they remind us of the economic basis of the emotions that politicians generate or manipulate or harness um i think kunal's uh, chapter discusses the anxieties as well as the hopes that were generated by uh, various uh, uh policy decisions that uh, the modi government took in its first uh, tenure whether it was the demonetization of uh, high denomination currency notes or the introduction of goods and services tax um there were worries of course but there were also corresponding hopes that um you know things would improve uh, that um the country would uh, work together as one uh, which was the whole promise of the goods and services tax um or that uh, you know even with demonetization 
the idea that uh, well the rich would suffer uh, and uh, the 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 notion that uh, even though uh, as a poor person i might be having to stand in the queue uh, someone who was uh, much better off uh, was literally scrambling uh, because they found all their ill gotten wealth worthless so those were the sorts of ideas uh, hopes and anxieties that sort of entwined um, uh, you know with 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 these economic uh, policies um, I think Nitya's chapter is really interesting because um, it shows the ways in which, um, you know, the wide-ranging provision of welfare schemes, and some of those were probably more talked up than actually existing, uh, which is what a lot of other scholars of uh, welfare politics in India have also suggested, um, that rhetoric outpaced delivery. Um, but the feelings uh, of being cared for uh, the feeling of being protected, um, I think they permeate um, the wide-ranging provision of welfare schemes, including houses and toilets, as well as financial inclusion of the rural poor. Um, so although there is a ongoing sort of agrarian crisis, um, you know, there, there are immediate ways in which uh, the government is seen to be protecting people from the gradient crisis that it is its own policies are uh, generating. Um, I think uh, Jens Lerke and Alpa Shah's chapter really sort of uh, shows the ways in which uh, you have agrarian distress, you have growing joblessness, you have widening inequalities, which aggravate worries and apprehensions about the future. Um, but of course, uh, we also see that if those apprehensions translated into disgruntlement, the disgruntlement did not translate into dislodgement. Um, and, you know, there is, uh, I suppose, uh, this uh, uh, paradox uh, at work again. Um, it was tempting to smoothen out the narrative so that we didn't talk about the troubles and we talked about how people perceived uh, that things were uh, only doing, uh, you know, going well. But that, of course, is not the story. People were acutely aware of uh, of the troubles in which they were. Um, but, um, uh, you know, voters uh, took a choice to, uh, you know, vote for the government, perhaps because of the ways in which Hindutva, nationalism and welfareism, uh, the idea that the government was committed to welfare, uh, blended together to produce uh, some sort of a Hindu nationalist welfareism. Um, you know, the perspective that the government cared locally, uh, also, you know, religiously, uh, as well as uh, nationally for, for, for India. Um, so it is, it, is, it is a complex story, which I think the, the chapters in section six help us to place in perspective. Yeah, absolutely so, absolutely so. Um, so coming towards the you know the seventh section, which is the you know, last section of the book, um, and it focuses on the implications and the future of India's democracy, which is I know is a big question at the moment. And the chapters here are by Professor James Manner, uh, Dr. Mujibur Rahman, and Professor Gurpreet Mahajan. Uh, I think whose work we all have read at some point or the other, and especially, you know, you're coming from the development and Indian context. Um, but the next election scheduled for 2024, uh, the question arises, how is emotion going to interplay, keeping in mind that we also have one of the highest number of internet users today? Mm. 
I suspect um, we will continue to see some, you know, to see more continuity. Um, and I think the, uh, you know, James's chapter, uh, you, you know, it tells us of the uh, deepening of um, the government's authoritarian tendencies. Uh, Mujib's chapter refers to the ways in which the Muslim minority, you know, feels its fate hanging in the balance, given the way in which they have been explicitly identified and targeted uh, by the uh, ideals of Hindutva. And we've seen some of these actually play out in the in the months and years after the elections. Um, I think it really, uh, you know, is for uh, uh, Professor Mahajan to close the book, as it were, because her chapter really circles back to how emotions and reason are entwined. Uh, and she talks about the reasoning of emotional politics. And I suspect some of those reasonings will continue with the caveat, of course, that the opposition may well be learning to play um, the same tune, as it were. Um, and that tune could be a soft Hindutva tune, which is to sort of take away some of the hardest edges of uh, the Hindutva rhetoric, um, which is what you see, uh, you know, sometimes uh, being the way in which, uh, say, the Ahmadmi Party or the Samajwadi Party or even the Congress Party sometimes sort of uh, playing along. Or you might see a much more explicit focus on uh, welfare, which is what you see in Tamil Nadu or, or Kerala. Or, or you might uh, sort of look at, uh, you know, questions of caste politics and caste census uh, as a way of undercutting uh, the Hindutva uh, identity uh, in the way that you see in Bihar or subnational populism of the sort that the Trinamool Congress is uh, well known for in West Bengal. Um, now, these not, none of these are new, but I suspect, you know, digital technologies are technologies that these um, protagonists may also use in a way that they may not have used um, earlier. Uh, I mean, already, if you look at some of the state level elections, uh, or you look at the, uh, you might look at the results of the Lok Sabha elections in different states uh, after 2024, you might see some of these uh, play out. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the Bharat Joro Yatra, uh, for instance, and the sort of coverage that it received on social media away from mainstream media. And, uh, you know, it does seem to suggest that um, it's not that uh, necessarily Rahul Gandhi and Jairam Ramesh uh, have mastered social media in, in favor of uh, the Congress party, but they're not just going to be passive observers to it. So there was a great deal of traction that something like the Bharat Joro Yatra, the, the sort of walking march that Rahul Gandhi undertook uh, across India, uh, you know, gained some traction. Um, you you see heated uh, debates on social media over the acronym of India that the opposition has uh, come up with. Uh, I have to be honest, I don't remember the full form of the acronym myself, but it has obviously garnered enough interest that people know that there is an acronym and that there is, you know, the acronym versus uh, the government, as it were. Um, and those are, of course, tricks that uh, the BJP and Mr. Modi were well known for, right? You know, coming up with catchy acronyms, coming up with catchy titles. So I'm not saying that uh, I'm not holding my horses. I'm not saying this is uh, necessarily necessarily a, a whole new sort of, um, you know, uh, concerted challenge. But as, as you mentioned, digital technologies are technologies that can be played by by different 
uh, groups. Uh, no one group necessarily has the monopoly over it. Um, and I think you might see uh, the continuation of those of those broad trends with surprising results um, uh, in, 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 in 2024. Wow, excellent. I think you address most of the you know, pertinent questions about the book, but I have a very important question for you. Okay, and you have to be honest with this. So what is the writing process for an edited volume? <laughs> what are the challenges? And you must tell us the challenges. And, you know, who do you mind elaborating the logistical issues and how are the, you know, operations and nitty-gritties are put into together place? And when you're managing so many writers at the same time, how yeah. do you really do that? Yeah, no, I mean, I have to say, and I'm being really honest here, as you said, I have to say, I think I just got lucky uh, you know, to work with a, uh, you know, uh, social scientists, uh, some of whom are, you know, very established, uh, you know, very senior in the field, as you know, who were willing to, uh, you know, convert their, uh, you know, talking points into uh, short chapters. Um, it is true that not all the contributors to the initial podcast were able to continue being with us because, you know, circumstances change, other things happen. Uh, but other colleagues who were not involved in the original podcast were quite happy to step in and, uh, you know, write up uh, short contributions. I think for this project, uh, the fact that we were looking at uh, short chapters, so not 6,000 word chapters, but as you will see, you know, the chapters are all about in the region of 2,500 words. Um, I suspect that helped because, uh, you know, it is uh, easier to convert talking points into 2,500 word chapters than, you know, very elaborate 6,000 word chapters. So I think once that was clear, um, once it was clear that we were not imposing a and necessarily a theoretical framework. I mean, obviously there was a conceptual thread, uh, but there wasn't a theoretical framework that was being imposed on on, on authors. Um, and as I said, uh, you know, I just got lucky that uh, our, our contributors were happy to work together. Um, putting together an edited collection is always fraught with uh, challenges, with uncertainties, because you don't know whether the publisher would be interested. You don't know whether the reviewers would be interested. Uh, you don't know whether the contributors will continue to remain interested. And, you know, beyond a point, uh, an edited volume does need a minimum number of contributors. Um, and I think we just got lucky because Manchester University Press was interested from the beginning. Um, although we had the COVID sort of pandemic that, you know, as you know, as everyone who's listening to this will know, you know, it disrupted uh, everything we knew about life and work. Um, but um, I think people were happy to uh, stick together despite the glacial progress during those months. Um, so I think uh, a basic recognition not to expect very quick outcomes, but to just stick to the process uh, is something that... Um, uh, all our uh, contributors uh, really demonstrated. And, uh, you know, I, 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 as I say, it's the third time I'm saying this, I just got lucky that, you know, we were, we were happy to sort of stick together. Um, it sometimes, uh, we did have uh, reviews, uh, some of which were very supportive, uh, others that were uh, less so. Um, and, and as everyone who's sort of been in the academic, um, you know, in the academic journey knows, 
um, you know, you get some positive constructive reviewers, you could use that to really show the strengths of your project uh, and often play off reviewers against one another. I think this is the oldest trick in the in the academic uh, sort of review addressal uh, program, but uh, a scheme almost. So, so that that was helpful. That we had some sympathetic reviews who actually were not only sympathetic but offered us very uh, specific ways in which we could frame the project. Um, uh, you know, um, knowing that this was not the result of a research grant uh, necessarily, where everyone might have the same sorts of uh, theoretical frameworks, but people were coming at it from different points of view. I think the fact that we were interdisciplinary um, was something we used to our advantage because we said that, you you know, we, 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 this is necessarily not something that can be pigeonholed into one or uh, the other theoretical framework. It is interdisciplinary, consciously interdisciplinary. Um, and that can be challenging when you have uh, folks who come from very different traditions who may not be willing to even talk to each other, but that wasn't the case uh, with us. Um, I think uh, you know people who were involved uh, knew who else was involved, did not mind each other's involvement, and I and I guess that sort of uh, worked out. Um, and I guess in terms of organizational operational nitty gritty, yeah, it's just useful to you know keep the publisher on board with things as they progress, keep the contributors on board. I think it's important to be open and transparent uh, about delays uh, at the publishers and about delays at your own end. I think everyone understands that academics, no matter what career stage they are in, uh, you know, are constantly waylaid by other sorts of projects that need immediate attention. And I think being open and transparent about that uh, is always uh, helpful. Um, but, and I'm going to say this one last time, I'm going to shut up. I think at the end of the day, you just, I suppose the role of luck is really important. You know, you, you get a a really good group of scholars who are, uh, willing to work together and willing to work with you. Uh, I think, uh, you just have to have some luck at least. And of course, all the hard work that you have put together that I know for sure. Um, also, you know, it's it's a very interesting approach because a lot of early career researchers, and I think it's an advice to a lot of us, in fact, um, if we're looking to do something and produce something, right, uh, other than our own work. And this can be a way forward, you know, and people who are listening to us can also think about it. And, you know, I want to also emphasize that even the chapters were short, by no means they were not impactful. They were coherent, they were clear, clean crisp. So I could, you know, I could read them quickly. I, I mean, I read the whole book, in fact, and that's why it took a little longer to even, you know, do the interview. So I thought, I think it's a, it's a very good approach and I think people should use it more often. I think you're 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 absolutely right. I, I think that 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 helped everyone a great deal right in the beginning, when we you know agreed to keep short chapters. Um, and it was of course a suggestion from some of the authors themselves uh, to say, well, you know, look, if you want to get something out quickly, uh, it might be better to have shorter chapters than than very long ones. Um, and so in that sense, you know, like I mentioned, it was a very bottom up uh, approach. Um, Contributors were writing about subjects they had already put some thoughts down. So in that sense, it helped. 
Um, and I, I think, you know, the point about the early career, this being one way in which early career scholars can really sort of, um, you, you know, bring themselves as well as the work they are interested in together. I think it, I, I did, I have to say, I found this a really helpful approach myself. Um, I don't know whether I would have qualified formally as an early career scholar when I started this, but I was two years into the job. Uh, one and a half years, I think, into the job, into into my, uh, into the York position. So I guess you could say fairly early, early career. Uh, I was still lecturer then. Um, and it, it was a really nice way to uh, get to know other people's work, uh, to sh- suggest that you were, well, at least serious about, you know, uh, working collaboratively. Um, and I think uh, there are lots of benefits uh, to, uh, you know, uh, putting together a volume like this. Um, unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, for some institutions, uh, the, you know, considerations of ref, etc. does mean that uh, edited volumes aren't, you know, considered seriously enough or taken uh, very seriously. But I think most uh, sensible and humane colleagues recognize the importance of uh, putting together an edited volume. Um, Even if it doesn't sort of uh, check the ref box, it does help enormously in the softer side of skills. And I would say not even softer side of skills, even the harder side of skills, you know, just, just as you, as you said, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot of hard work putting together a a, a volume, uh, any volume, no matter the number of people, no matter the career stage of the contributors, and I think it does help, uh, you know, uh, 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 colleagues a great deal if uh, you did this. So you're right. You know, it, it is a good way for early career scholars to, um, uh, you know, put themselves out in the open, uh, be open to criticism, to challenge. But also, I think that conveys the um, confidence that you might have in uh, working with uh, folks who will sooner or later become your peers. Fantastic. And uh, for our listeners who are not aware of REF, uh, REF is a process of expert review, particularly for university academics in the UK. So I might add that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a very um, specific thing. Yeah, that's right. yeah exactly. exactly. I'm, I'm sure there's something in India also. I know there is one in India also. Um, similar to this. Um, okay, now we're almost towards the end of it. Uh, what are your upcoming projects? And I know there are a lot of work and you do a lot of work and I don't know how you do it. Uh, and how do you how do you kind of decide, like how do you decide your progression from one project to another? If you could discuss a bit, it could also, you know, we can also learn from you. Sure, sure. Um, I have to say, I'm, I, I don't know whether I'm the best um, example here, but since you asked me, I'll put it out there and I mentioned right in the beginning, uh, Tusharika, that I'm extremely undisciplined. So in a sense, I literally follow the heart. <laughs> I literally just, you know, what I'm interested in. Obviously, you know, I, 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 you know it, has to, it, it draws on what I've done in the past. Uh, it draws on, you know, uh, uh, ideas that I've had. Um, but I, I, I do, I do really, uh, you know. The, for me, it's it's enormously important to be interested in 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 the project. Um, uh, if if one is not interested in the project or one doesn't really, uh, you know, feel for it, it's never going to um, uh, materialize. 
uh, there may be there, there are often lots of other reasons because of which projects don't materialize. So I'm not saying that uh, it's necessarily a failure if you start working on something and that doesn't come to fruition. There are lots of other reasons um, that you know things don't uh, sort of come to completion. But I I I, I do follow what I'm interested in, uh, and I do sort of uh, you know I I decide on on projects. Um, in terms of uh, you know what 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 I'm keen to follow, uh, what I'm keen to learn more about, um, uh, and what I'm keen to uh, really sort of uh, take forward uh, as my contribution. Um, sometimes that has meant um, I venture into uh, topics uh, on which I don't have prior expertise. Um, and some folks might criticize that as saying, you know, you're sort of getting going beyond your lane or you're, you're not where you're supposed to be. <laughs> you know, go back to the conversation we had earlier about surveillance. Um, but I think, again, that's where the role of supportive colleagues comes in uh, very much. Uh, you know, if you sort of are interested in something, you are able to identify supportive colleagues who are willing to well work with you despite you not having you know being the top sort of top scholar in that particular uh topic uh you know i think that's 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 really key so identifying projects that you really care about uh working with colleagues collaborating with colleagues who are obviously you know supportive and helpful um and there will always be the odd colleague who doesn't see any value in what you're doing or uh, you know, thinks you're wasting your time and theirs, and that's fine. You know, it's a big world. You, you, you. There will be others who will be supportive. So, um, no, no harm. You know, no, no point carrying grudges against anyone. Uh, you just move on to the next uh, person who's uh, who has the time and is willing to work with you. Um, they don't always have to be senior uh, colleagues. Um, they could be, you know, the same level as you. Um, they could even be junior colleagues, uh, but of course that does bring in, you know, uh, elements of power disparity. So I think it's it's useful when you're starting out um, to work with colleagues who are at the same level as you or senior to you, so that you're not exploiting them uh, in unfair ways, uh, but you're learning from them. Um, so I, I think that's uh, that 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 would be that's been my uh, approach. Uh, it has resulted in uh, a lot of heartache uh, in terms of, uh, you know, being, uh, you, you know, not quite um, getting the grant that you want or getting the, you know, specific opportunity that you want because the reviewers don't think that you have prior expertise. But, um, it you know, if you pursue and uh, if you sort of keep at it um, with uh, you know, collaborators and colleagues uh, who are supportive. I think that 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 does help, uh, and you do find a way forward. Um, so you, you know, just to give an example, as I was mentioning earlier, I am very keen, and I have been you know looking at the politics of global development um, at different scales. Uh, and as you think about a global development at you know in, in at at the international level, if you will, um, you know increasingly you cannot ignore the role of a power like China, for instance. So you think about China as a global development player. Um, and when I first thought about uh, you know this question, I had no prior expertise on China uh, or on the politics of China, uh, but I was keen to sort of explore. 
uh, that, uh, you know, the, the role of uh, China as a global actor uh, in the context of Europe, uh, because that would upturn all that we know and understand in development studies, for instance. Um, and again, uh, you know, I sought out collaborators uh, who were willing to work with me, despite me not having any prior expertise on China. Um, and uh, again, got very lucky to have a very, very uh, sympathetic and um, uh, you know, adventurous uh, collaborators uh, with whom we put together uh, an edited volume, uh, which is forthcoming with Oxford University Press. Um, since you asked about you know future projects, so um, so uh, you know it 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 will hopefully be published by December. Um, so uh, I, I think it's 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 good to sort of follow your heart, do what you're interested in, be adventurous. Uh, work with colleagues uh, who are supportive, uh, ignore those who who, who are not, um, and, uh, you know, be prepared for backlash and uh, uh, disagreements and heartaches. But, um, you know, I suppose know what you want. That's that's my two pence. Oh, that's, that's so thoughtful, Indrajit, and also very inspiring. And I think, I wish more people think about thinking from hard. And um, I know, and so I always have thought that there should have been hard and fast rules, right? We should be allowed to do what we want to do. And um, I mean, that is really inspiring. I, if you know, I do a lot of editorial work and and I actually enjoy this process. I enjoy doing communications. I enjoy connecting. And I've always thought that, you know, I've been also questioned that at this stage where I'm almost there to finish my PhD, why you keep doing this? It's only because I enjoy doing this. And I enjoy because I get to talk to people like you. It's oh, just so inspiring. Very kind. Um, I should say that the approach of following your heart uh, should not be confused with um, parachuting into a topic, you know, from afar and, you know, dabbling in it and then presenting yourself as an expert. I think that would be that's not that that's not that's not what i mean at all i mean reaching out to collaborators and you know engaging in collaborative work i mean i think that's i'm sure your audience understands but i want to leave no room for confusion <laughs> i mean i mean that of course comes from self awareness right which um we don't see often we see among academics too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you know what I mean. So <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and you know, all the very best for all the upcoming project. Uh, before going, I need to ask this question and ask everyone: What is that one book that you would recommend that everybody should read? Right. Um, since we are coming to the end of the project, uh, end of this talk, but um, I did want to also, just in terms of referring back to the previous question, I did want to flag. Uh, the Cambridge Companion to Indian Politics and Society, which I'm co-editing with Manali Desai. Uh, I just want to mention that uh, um, is, uh, you know, audience, your audiences may want to look out for it. Uh, I am not sure yet when it will be published, but it's very much in the works and hopefully we'll see that uh, next year. But I and was again... we can have a conversation about that as well. Yes, that, that can be done later. But I just, sorry, I, I, I thought I shouldn't ignore that because, um, you know, I have this opportunity to talk about it, so why not? Um, right. In terms of the one book that you would, rec that I would recommend, I mean, I, at this stage, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm only looking at recent books. I'm not looking at all books ever. Although I guess if I were to sort of ask, be asked about that one book that I would recommend, you know, from, from all time classics sort of thing, 
it uh, it has to be um, Barrington Moore Jr.'s uh, social origins of democracy and dictatorship. Um, but I think in terms of a much more recent uh, work, which I've been inspired by a great deal, and I, it's really got me to think about questions of democracy and politics, not only in India, but also world over. Although this book is on India, but it, it is something that gets you to think about democracy the world over and actually sits in very creative tension with Barrington Moore Jr. is Mukulika Banerjee's Cultivating Democracy. You know, the idea of democracy, uh, you know, and its rural sort of origins and base in India, uh, I think gets us to think a great deal uh, and think very creatively and critically as well about the questions of democracy and where it's sort of successful and where it's not and uh, and not success measured by you know random indices but in terms of substantive engagement so i think mukulika's work is is fascinating generally but cultivating democracy is is the one recent book i would definitely uh, recommend if you give me another choice i would say naomi hussain's uh, the aid lab uh, which is a story of bangladesh's uh, development trajectory and how a country that was written off uh, at its birth, uh, you know, proved everyone wrong. Uh, but it's not a hagiographic account of Bangladesh. It, you know, it shows you the misery and the, uh, you know, uh, the, the the painful politics that has underpinned Bangladesh's growth, um, but is, is not a sort of story of uh, doom either. So I, I suppose I, I like both Mukulika and Naomi's work precisely because of their very realist approach to things. Um, not realist as understood in the IR sort of literature, but realist in the way that word is used in everyday English. You know, they, they tell you about the world in the way it really is rather than how it should be. Um, and I find them both to be quite useful foils to Barrington Moore's work, which I started out with earlier. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say Mukulika and Naomi. Oh, lovely. And any fiction uh, you would advise? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, uh, I, I always, um, you know, go back to The Alchemist, but that's probably so hackneyed that <laughs> I should probably, you'll probably be embarrassed I said it, but no, I think it, it has to be The Alchemist. You know, I think it has to be. I mean, I, I read a lot of uh, Coelho's work, uh, rest of his work. Uh, then I read uh, Alchemist. I read it much later. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. 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 No, I think there is something about the breeziness as well as, you know, the way it touches you in so many ways. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Indrajit. And this is lovely speaking to you. And thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, your generosity and um, for doing all this that you're doing. Um, you know, I, I can I can imagine it's you're not getting too many sort of accolades for it. Uh, you're rather being asked to finish, you know, focus on your PhD. But I think this is important public service you're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, this. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Good luck with everything. <laughs> <laughs>